Morning, everyone. Thanks for that applause. Hey, before I get into the message, um, mentioning the Christmas outreach. You know, we're having an outreach on Christmas Day at 10 o'clock in the morning. And uh, we're going to go to local businesses that are open and bless them. And as well, we're going to go to um, some of the kind of long-term stay motels that we have in the area here where people are, are living there on an ongoing basis. And we're just going to go and take uh, food to these folks, like breakfast-type food. And um, so you might be thinking, yeah, Christmas morning, we already do stuff then. We have presents, we open and stuff like that. But look, if, you're like, if your kids are like me, on Christmas morning, I was up at the latest at 5 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I had to wait until my parents woke up, which was torture. But uh, once we hit the tree, it was over real fast. And um, by 10 o'clock, you're going to be looking for something to do. And, and I want to say this, what better way to show your children the love of Jesus, what it really is like in a practical way, than to say, hey, we're not going to stay here and play with whatever toys you got. We're going to go out and bless people. We're going to go out and tell them Jesus loves them. And, and, and I, I just want to lay that kind of um, parental, maybe challenge, don't take that word too negatively, out there, and just say, look, bring your kids and come. And it'll be the best Christmas you ever had and the best Christmas they ever had. So that's Christmas Day, 10 a.m. We'll meet here in the atrium. It's going to be a blast. Last time we did this where we included families, we had close to 100 people come out. And probably 30 of them were kids. And so they can all attest to the fact that it is worth it to make that a priority in your family life. Sound good? All right. So, um, Father... We're thankful that you've called us to be part of what you're doing in this world and in this community and in this, this whole quadrant of the city and the entire city of Cincinnati, Lord. You've called us here. And we want to take that seriously, Father. And so we just we ask in Jesus' name for um, Holy Spirit anointing on Christmas morning uh, for every family here from 5 o'clock a.m. on and at 10 o'clock when we gather here, Father. Just bless that time in a big way. And Father, we look to you now to speak to us, teach us. We open our hearts, Holy Spirit, to you as the teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. I came to uh, know Jesus when I was just short of my 21st birthday. I had flunked out of college, went back to college, and connected with some Christian guys, and really had the privilege of being discipled by a man named Mel Stewart. He was probably in his upper 40s at the time. And uh, he was a godly man, a man of the Bible. And I remember him hitting the Bible and saying, the Bible is it, guys. The Bible is it. But he also had this Holy Spirit thing going on in his life. He had worked with Catherine Kuhlman. If you remember her, she was a, a great healing evangelist from the Pittsburgh area back in the 50s and probably into the 60s. And so he also had this emphasis on the, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit that he passed on to us. There were four of us that he discipled. Well, uh, after we graduated, there were a couple of weddings, and it was the second or third wedding when Mel took us, all four of us aside, and he pulled a rosebud off of um, a vase of roses, and it hadn't opened. It was tightly shut, and he said, smell this. So we all went around, we all smelled it, and there wasn't much odor there. So Mel put it on the table, and he crushed it with his hand. He just ground it into the table, and he said, smell it now. And when he did that, the fragrance had been released from the rose. And then he said, all four of you are going into ministry. 
And he said, crushing is going to come into your life. He said, pain is going to come into your life. And that's a necessary part of your growth and your development. In order for you to experience the fullness, to have the fullness of Jesus come out of you, there's going to be stuff that's going to be hard to go through. And he just exhorted us to trust God when that happens and, and to go through it all with faithfulness. Now, in my infinite wisdom, I sat there and I thought, I'm going to bypass this. <laughs> I know, I'm not going to need to be crushed because I'm just going to be so open with God and I'm going to be so submissive to God right now that there's not going to be anything left that's going to have to be uh, taken out of me. Man, how foolish can you get? <laughs> you know, part of the problem with that type of thinking is what you don't know, you don't know. And what you don't know, you can't submit to God. And over the years, I found there have been so many different belief systems that at that point in my life, I held. I just assumed that was right. And, and over the years, God keeps showing me more and more and saying, no, that, that's not the right way to think about this. Here's the godly biblical way to think about this. And, and wounds in your heart that you're not even aware are there, but that you're operating out of. And all your relationships are impacted by those wounds. And you don't know why certain people make you nervous. They just do. And, and it's coming out of some wound in your heart that needs to be healed. And so what Mel told us was true, I'm sure, for each and every one of us, that we've, we've all gone through pain and difficulty and hardship. And, uh, and it really is faithfulness and sticking with it. And, and you don't give up. You hold on tenaciously. And that's how you make, through, make it through. And that's how, by trusting God through difficulty, that is how you grow. That's how the fragrance is released. Now, it's a mistake for us to picture the life of Jesus and the home life of Jesus, and that's what our series is on right now, and to think they didn't experience pain. You know, Jesus, God's son, he had it made in the shade. You know, it must have been a smooth life. Well, I mean, right at the very beginning, it, it was turmoil. It was traumatic. Shortly after Jesus is born, they're told they have to flee for their lives. How many people here, when your baby is, what, just maybe six months, up to two years, somewhere like that, you're told, yeah, you have to flee for your life right now. No, you can't go talk to your mother first. No, you can't go, can't go to the bank first. You got to go right now. Th that would be a traumatic thing to happen to a family that would live with them for years. So you live in this foreign culture, and then when you come back, you come back and you find out they still want to kill them. And so you can't go there, you got to go here, because this guy still wants to kill your baby. And then along the way somewhere, you hear what happened in that little village you had lived in when you left. And you hear that all these baby boys under the age of two have been put to the sword, they'd all been slaughtered. And you're thinking, well, is that our fault? I mean, he was looking for our baby. And, and Mary, in those months that they had lived there, she would have gotten to know other young mothers and the other little, the little, little baby boys that were born. She would have known them. Her heart would have broken over that. You talk about trauma and needing to, and living with heart pain. And, and then the very fact that even in Jesus' ministry, 30 years later, at one point, his enemies said to him, at least we were not born of fornication. Do you know what they were saying? They were saying, your mother, she was, she was a vile woman. Your mother was, a, your mother was not an honest woman. 
they, they were saying that Jesus was, born, Jesus was conceived out of wedlock. And so those rumors have persisted in Mary's life over those, all the years. So there was trauma and pain there, no doubt. I think one of the hardest things, though, for them, and particularly for Jesus, was the waiting. Just patiently waiting. Because he figured out pretty early on who he was. We're going to see that in a few moments. But the waiting and, and, and the difficulty of waiting. Because they had prophetic words. They had prophetic, they had words from angels as to who Jesus was and what he was going to do. And when you have that, when you have these words from, from God and you don't see them fulfilled, it's really, really hard, the waiting and holding on to the promise while you wait. And so Jesus was himself dealing with that constantly. But prophetic words are actually how we wait. And by prophetic words, I mean there may be promises from the Bible that you've received over the years. You know, when you're reading the Bible and sometimes a verse just jumps off the page at you, it just kind of like leaps off the page into your heart. The old, the old time theologians called that quickening. They said the Spirit quickened that verse to your heart. And that means the Holy Spirit took it and he gave you revelation into it. And from that point on, it's something special to you. And it's something you hold on to, at least for that season of life, if not for your entire lifetime. And so there are promises that we've gained through Scripture that way. And then there are promises you read in Scripture that you just say, I want that promise. And God says, that's okay, go for it, because all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Since Jesus came, all those promises in the Old Testament are available to all of us. So you can hold on to those promises. But then prophetic words as well. You know, when Jesus' parents took him to the temple to dedicate him when he was just days old, uh, they encountered two prophets there, Simeon and Anna. And Simeon says these amazing things about Jesus. He takes him in his arms and he quotes Old Testament prophecies about Jesus being the one who is going to set the people free, and he's the one that God's spirit is going to rest on, and he's the one that is the hope of Israel. So they've heard all this, and Anna comes, and she blesses, as a prophetess, she blesses this young family. So these promises, the promises of the angels, all the Old Testament messianic promises are things that they are now living with as they wait to see the fulfillment. In 1 Timothy 1.18, Paul said to Timothy this. He said, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with what? With the prophecies made concerning you. But by them you might fight the good fight. Okay, these prophecies, he said, you hold on to those, and that gives you strength to keep fighting. And the biggest fight I think we face is the fight of patience, waiting, waiting, wait, tenacious waiting. I titled this uh, message today, A Home with Tenacity, because it's not just like this passive patience of sitting back and saying, well, okay, God, whatever your will be, your will, not mine, but it is having the promises and holding on to them. The beginning of our church, we had... <clears throat> a prophetic man named Tom Barger who was here, and he was a real prophet. And um, he used to give me really great prophetic words. But there was one thing he said to me over and over again. He said, Van, I don't think you get how significant this thing is that God wants to do through this church. 
And, and he wasn't meaning that we're going to become a church of 20,000 people, but that this church is going to have an impact on the city and on the region. And, and I would say, Tom, I'm trying, man. You know, I, tell me what to do. You know, what, what do you mean I don't get it? And, and we had a good relationship. But I understand much better now what he meant. And when you get a promise, you get a prophetic word, you've got to hold on to it. You know, Jesus said at one point, the kingdom of God is advancing forcefully. And forceful people take hold of it. It's not just sitting back and saying, well, okay, God, if you want those promises to happen, that's fine. It is in our hearts hearing the promises, hearing those prophetic words, and taking hold of them tenaciously. We're not going to give up. I'm not going to quit on this word. That's the difficulty. I'm not going to say I must have gotten this wrong. I know this was from God. It hasn't happened yet. I'm holding on. In my heart, I'm holding on to this word, tenaciously, forcefully holding on to this word. Jesus had that ability. He had that ability to hold on. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Jesus from the um, early, early time, last mention of him when he received that, uh, those prophetic words at the temple until he's 30 years old when he bursts onto the scene. But there is one account. When Jesus was 12, what had happened was Mary and Joseph had gone down to Jerusalem and, uh, to celebrate the, 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 um, the, the Passover and the celebration that, that they were having at that time. And on their way home, they go for one full day without having Jesus around. Now you, they just assumed he was with someone else. They assumed he was with friends or family. You know what that tells me? That tells me they had a pretty tight community. They had, a pretty, they had people that they knew in community. It'd be kind of like when Wilson was little and the Hazelmeyers, Luke's, uh, Luke Hazelmeyer, who was leading worship today, uh, Will and Luke were best friends, and the Hazelmeyers were our friends, and if we're traveling somewhere and we don't see Wilson, we say, oh, he must be with the Hazelmeyers. They thought that. And so they go for a whole day. And then they come back to Jerusalem looking for him. It takes them two days in Jerusalem. Finally, they find him in the temple. And here's what we read when they find him. This is uh, Luke 2, 46 to 52. It says, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. You know, Jesus one advantage Jesus had over us was he had never sinned. So his brain was not impacted by sin like ours are. So he's 12 years old and he's amazing the scholars. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Now I wanna say, Mary and Joseph had not held on tenaciously to the promises. At least at this point, they had released some of them. Because if they had remembered everything that had been said about Jesus, they wouldn't have been totally shocked that he was in the temple, would they? And so during this waiting period, promises start off here, and as time goes on, the promises became less and less part of their mind and their heart, so that they, they weren't really tenaciously holding on to them, but Jesus had. Jesus knew by this time who he was, and so here's what he says says, why were you searching for me, he asked. 
Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Isn't that an amazing answer? I, I want to ponder that. Ponder that sometime, okay, and just think, what was going on in Jesus' mind? Wasn't he smart enough to know that they were afraid that he'd been lost? I think he was. Of course he was. But this, this is just the response of a, of a, a very smart, godly 12-year-old. And I don't know what to say about it beyond that, okay? I'm just going to stop talking because I'm going to say something really stupid in a moment. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Why not? Because they had let go of the promises. Wow. They had forgotten the promises. Wow. Then he went down to Nazareth and with them and was obedient to them. It says he was submissive to them. You know what that means? Well, what that means is Jesus is saying to them, look, look don't you know, you know who I am? Don't you know this is where I belong right here? I mean, Jesus was ready to go at the age of 12. He, he, he had come to consciousness of who he was, and he's ready to enter his ministry. And let's change this nation right now. I'm old enough to do it. I'm ready to go. But instead, what he did was he returned with them, and he submitted to them. He followed the leading and direction of his parents. For 18 years after that incident at the age of 12, and it goes on to say, but his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Mary did treasure these things in her heart. Uh, even, and I wouldn't be too harsh on Mary and Joseph saying they forgot the promises, but I really think that's what happened. Maybe if they had had some forewarning, they would have been able to review and say, oh, okay, okay this, is what, this is what should be happening right now. But um, he obeyed them. 18 years. And in that time, it says he grew in wisdom. That means in his heart, in his life, in his mind, in his spirit. He grew in stature. That means he grew physically. And in favor with God and man. So Jesus is growing in his relationship with God this whole time for these 18 years. And he's growing in favor for 18 years after he's ready to jump in and, and go for it. 18 years of, of real anonymity and just regular life, knowing full well what the call of God was on his life. And yet he was patient. He was able to wait because he had confidence in God and in God's promises. And he realizes he needed that time of waiting. Now, maybe he didn't realize that at the age of 12, but he did need that time of waiting because even Jesus was perfected by the things he suffered it's waiting, waiting, waiting is a form of suffering. It's hard. But he grew in wisdom through that. It, look, if Jesus needed 18 years just to develop wisdom, how much do you and I need? I mean, it's amazing any of us in life ever get to the point that God says, okay, you're ready for this. <laughs> I'll let you walk into this now. But Jesus takes this 18-year time when he's, he's, he's submissive to his parents and he is willing to just follow God just on a daily basis, just the grind. He's, you know, he becomes a carpenter. At some point, Joseph dies. We know that because Joseph is never mentioned in any of the accounts of Jesus' life after he enters his public ministry. And if he had still been alive, it's unthinkable to think they wouldn't have mentioned the father of Jesus as well as his mother. And, and yet before he died, he gave Jesus passed on to Jesus the carpentry trade. And, you know, just as today, carpentry can mean probably 
eight or ten different things. In those days, it had a wide variety of meanings also. So we don't know exactly what type of carpenter he was, but he was a carpenter. Let's say Jesus, between 12 and 18, he learned carpentry. I think he would have been a fast learner, so that's fair to say. Six years of apprenticeship with Joseph. Sometime around that time, Joseph probably dies, and that leaves Jesus with, what, 12, maybe 10 years of living as really the head of this family as the eldest son, taking care of the kids, looking out for his mother, honoring her. She would have still been very prominent in leading the family, but he would have borne the burden of provision and care and protection for the family. And he just and he leads that in a city of Nazareth, which was not like a great city. It was one of the tougher places around. And so Jesus spends that amount of time living just like what? Just like you and just like me. Now, if you're thinking again, but hey, wait a second, he was the son of God, he was deity, and so he had an advantage over me because he could like snap his fingers and, and uh, make that short board long. You know, there's stories like that, that Joseph cut a board too short once and Jesus said, well, here, let me touch it. And, and Jesus just pulls the board out to the right length. Stories of Jesus raising baby birds and striking a little friend dead out of anger. And then Mary comes out and tells him, you got to raise him from the dead. And th th that, there's nothing biblical about any of that. Okay, Jesus was a real man, real human being. The Bible in Philippians 2 says that Jesus chose not to live with the prerogatives of deity, Philippians 2, 7. But he chose to come and live as a servant. And so it wasn't until Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit came on him and then he went out into the desert and came back filled with the power of the Spirit. That's when his miracles started. So growing up, there was never a time when Mary said to Joseph, when Mary said to Joseph, see, Jesus could have fixed that right there. <laughs> there was never a time Mary said to Joseph, Joseph, the bank account is getting kind of low. Can you have Jesus visit the bank? That, that never happened. There was never a time when Mary said, oh boy, we have, uh, we invited two families over, now there are six coming and I don't have enough food. And so, gee, okay, mom, all right, multiply the bread, multiply the meal and the lasagna and whatever else is there. That didn't happen. If that was the case, then, then we, we don't have any commonality with Jesus and how can we follow him? See, he conducted his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit, just like you and I conduct our ministries and how we live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he did that for 18 years. And he did that for 18 years, those last 10, 12 years with the pressure of leading a family without losing hope, without losing a sense of the promise. And it's the waiting that is hard, but it is essential because it is in the waiting that God draws out his fragrance in our lives and his beauty in our lives. And he does the things in our hearts that we need to have done so we can be ready to enter into the thing he has for us. And get this, the very thing he builds into us while we're waiting, those are the very same things that will sustain us once we enter into the thing we're waiting for. Because if you get the thing you're waiting for before your heart is ready for it, 
the thing you're waiting for becomes God. Because that's, that's it right there. I'm, boy, this ministry, if I can just have this ministry, if I can just get married, if I, if I can just have this job, if I can just move to this city, and we think, oh, boy, that's where G, uh, peace is going to be, then that becomes God. But we, we waiting tempers our hearts, and it tempers our desires so that we enter into that thing. We've already learned Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. You know, if this ministry I have falters, that's okay. Jesus is enough. If, if, if I never get married, Jesus is enough. And once we've gone through that waiting period and we've really come to know Jesus is enough, then he's really enough. It's not like we're tapping our foot during the waiting period saying, okay, Jesus, you're enough. You're enough. Can I have that now? It's not like that. No, once you go through that, then you really are serious. Okay, Jesus. And then you gave me these promises. If, you want, if that's what you want from me, then I'm ready to hold on to them and I'm ready to go for it, but I'm going to be happy with whatever you give me. So Jesus went through that, and, and that's what you and I need to go through. We need to learn the same thing. King David learned that. In the Old Testament, he was a shepherd boy out and taking care of the sheep, but he had a warrior's heart. He was a warrior. He killed a bear. He killed a lion. He was a warrior, but he was a shepherd. And when the prophet came to anoint one of Jesse, Jesse, David's father's name was Jesse, to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king, he didn't even bring David in from the fields. He was overlooked by his own dad, overlooked by his own father. And then when he was anointed king and he came into relationship with the existing king, he ended up fleeing for his life for years, living on the run. But David didn't let go of the promises. He, did not, he, held, he was like one of these forceful people who lay hold of the promises of the kingdom and doesn't let go. He was tenacious. He had tenacity. So that when he did finally come into the role or when he had the opportunity to enter into it illegitimately, he didn't take it. He could have killed the current king twice and he said, no, that's not right. I'm not going to enter into this this way. When God's timing is, I'll enter in. With God's timing, I'll enter in. And that was because he really trusted God and he held on to God's promises. Now, Moses, I think, is a little different. Moses had promises from God, and as a young man, he, he went, went for it. And he was exiled from Egypt and lived 40 years in the wilderness, again as a shepherd. But when God finally came to him and said, okay, Moses, now it's time. Moses had, had that, that, that whole passion for the promises of God had drained out of Moses. And God had to kind of like re-excite that and reinvigorate that in him to move him ahead. But what we learn while we're waiting is the very thing we need to have once the promise is fulfilled. I was thinking of my wife, Lori, and I share this with her permission, but <clears throat> she had been engaged in college and then broke off the engagement about the time, roughly about the time she came to know the Lord and uh, was growing in her faith, but was also lonely and, and wondering if she'd ever get married. And God brought her to the point where she was content being single. So in effect, she had learned real patience in life. And it was shortly after that that we got married. And that patience that she had learned, she really needed. <laughs> oh. 
What you learn while you're waiting is what you need when you see the fulfillment of the promise come. And so don't, don't disdain that time of waiting. Get everything out of it you can and trust God with it. In some respects, I think waiting is like a baseball game. You know, do you like baseball? I like, I like football better, but I like to go to baseball games because baseball games are kind of like going to a picnic with just enough activity that everyone points their chairs the same direction. Okay. And you get to talk to people. And honestly, on a hot, sunny day, it's nice to sit there and have a cold beer as well. But um, picture a baseball game where your team doesn't get a hit for nine innings. Everybody strikes out for nine innings. Now, the other team has tons of guys on base, but at the end of nine innings, it's 0-0. Zero, zero. They, they never scored either. Now you're in the bottom of the, you're in the 12th inning, top of the 12th. The other team scores three runs. And you're thinking, oh man, we haven't even gotten a hit today. This game is over. So your team is up now, out number one, then a hit. Out number two, then another single. Then another single. The bases are loaded now, two outs. So your hopes are up a little, and Jesus comes to the plate, and he hits a grand slam. Okay? That's what waiting is like. And you go away and you say, why did we ever doubt? We should have known Jesus was going to do this at some point. He, this is the kind of stuff he does. Why did I ever doubt? Why were we ready to go home after inning seven? But you see, the key is you stay with the game. If you go home after seven innings or nine innings or 11 innings, you miss the outcome. And so you stay with it. You're patient and you wait. and You say, God, I trust you. I don't see this happening. I don't see the outcome of it yet, but I'm trusting you, and I know you're good, and I know, you, I know you're going to fulfill your word. And so what we, what we view as delay in our eyes is really God, God sees it as process, process for his kids, process to lead his kids into the heart posture and heart position that they are ready to handle the promise when they actually get to walk into that promise. So waiting is hard. There are, different, there are different pitfalls while we're waiting, different lies from the enemy, and uh, just to f- note a few of them. One of them is, the devil's doing this to me. The devil's holding me back. And on rare occasions, I think that's true, but most of the time, I don't think it's true. I think there's just often just a waiting process that we go through. That's just part, you know, God's into process. He, he could have created the world in a millisecond. He took six full days. Why? I don't know, but he apparently likes process. And as I look at life, it's pretty obvious he likes process. So I'm not sure that the devil's always doing this to us. And if we think he is, that's going to scuttle God's work in our lives. And so the devil's role is not stopping you. The devil's role is to convince you he's the one stopping you. Because if he can do that then you don't have an open heart to what God wants to do in you. You're just constantly rebuking the devil and wondering why it's not working. And so this idea that it's all the devil, once in a while that's the case. And if it is, you're going to have some really close friends who understand how the Holy Spirit works. We're going to help you to discern that. But most of the time, it's just God's process. And we just need to be patient and trust him. Another lie is God's abandoned me because I screwed up. God's mad at me for some reason. I didn't do something right. I don't know what it is, but I must have done something, and that's why this has happened. I I mentioned Tom Barger earlier. 
he was here for a couple of years and then he passed away. And I honestly went through this period just of struggle and almost depression because I thought I had done something that God took our prophet away from us. Isn't that, for one thing, that's incredibly self-centered of me. That was incredibly self-centered to me. For me to think God would kill this guy just to teach me a lesson. <laughs> Isn't that stupid? But that, that was the thought I was struggling with. And finally, I, it, God showed me that that wasn't even close to the case. And, and so it, there's, there's the possibility of us thinking God's abandoned us because of something we have done. And that's really a lack of understanding of God's goodness. It's a lack of understanding of how God works with us. It's not an exchange of good things for good things. And if I do bad things, he gives me bad. Now, if I make stupid decisions, I will often pay the price for them in this life because there are things in life just built into life. Like if you hit yourself in the head with a hammer, it's going to hurt, okay? If, if you quit your job for no good reason, you're going to suffer because of that. Okay, so there are decisions we make that can bring pain, but it's not like God's there saying, oh man, you quit your job, you had, boy, I am going to hammer you for that. I'm going to teach you a lesson. Those are just the reproofs of life. But this idea that I screwed up, I made a mistake, so God took something good from me, and I don't even know what it was I did, is just really ridiculous. What father would ever discipline their child and yet not tell them Why? doesn't happen. A good father would not discipline their child without telling them clearly why. And so rest in that and trust God with that. Now, a third thing that can happen is, um, it's kind of similar to number two, but God promised this, but God changed his mind. Somehow he's chosen to withhold the best from me. Maybe, maybe I'm snake bit or I'm cursed or something like that, but but God's just decided he's not going not gonna to bless me, not going to fulfill his promise. And, and that's a real affront to the character of God. Because it's not yes and no with God. Paul says that in Corinthians. It's not yes and no with God, but it is yes in Jesus Christ. And he says all the promises of God are yes in Christ for his children. And so the idea that he would just flippantly decide not to bless me or not to bless you is, is crazy. You know, we can easily blame others as well. These other people just knew what God was calling me to. If they just knew what God had done in my life, if they just knew, then they would stop hindering me and they would advance me, give me a platform or whatever. But what if it isn't the other people? It's just God saying, you need some more time to, to simmer. You, you need some more time to get the spices of my life simmered into your whole system. What if it's that? And so the idea that we look at other people and say, or even the idea that other people can hinder the will of God. Romans 8.32 says this. It says, if God is for me, who can be against me? Okay? So if God has a call on your life, no, no one can stop that call. No one can hinder that. You might be in a period of waiting, but you wait and you hold on. You hold on to what God has for you, and you trust him for that. I can tell you, I've, I know that by fact. I mean, I've experienced that where hit points in my ministry where I thought this is all over, you know, because of what this person did or what that person did or what they're plotting or whatever, this is all over. 
But I want to tell you, if you ever hit a place like that where you have someone that is rising up actually against you, do you know the way through that is to respond with godly character? First of all, you affirm to God, God, even this person can't stop me from fulfilling what you've called me to unless I agree with them. If I agree with them and if I say, yeah, you're stopping me, then I'm, I'm going to stop. But unless I agree with them, if I agree with you, God, that you have this future for me and I bless them, I'm not coming back at them to hurt them or to get even with them. I honor them even though they're attacking me. That's how you walk through difficult things like that. And that's why another person just can't, can't keep you from fulfilling what God has for you. So, you know, when I was a kid, thanks, honey. <laughs> when I was a kid, about 12, 13 years old, I wanted a semi-automatic 22 rifle. They made them with a tube. You put 19 rounds in it. I could have popped off 19 rounds in three or four seconds. And my dad knew I wanted that. You know what he got me? A bolt action. Not a single shot, thank God. But a bolt action rifle. They still had a tube magazine. But he said, a semi-auto, you're not ready for that. And I wasn't. I mean, I, who knows what I would have done. I probably would have shot myself or my friend or, or who knows what. But uh, I, I wasn't ready for that. I wanted it, but I wasn't ready for it. So he gave me what I was ready to handle. And in so many respects, that's what waiting is all about, is God tempering our lives so that he can give us what we're ready to handle. So how to wait well? Well, focus on the basics, just like Jesus. Do what's in front of you with all your heart, day after day. Value what God's given you to do today. Because if you don't value that, you won't value the greater thing when he gives you that. We just watched the movie Mr. Rogers the other night. And <clears throat> at one point, there's this cynical reporter that's supposed to do an article on Mr. Rogers. And his name was Lloyd Vogel in the movie. And uh, he's talking to Mr. Rogers on the phone. And he doubts that Mr. Rogers is really real. And this is their first contact. And at some point in their phone call, uh, Fred Rogers says to him, Lloyd, do you know what the most important thing in the world is to me right now? And Lloyd's, he's, I think he was eager to hear because he's going to get some insight. Mr. Rogers says, talking to Lloyd Vogel. Somehow the ability to just say, this is the most important thing in the world. What is right here in front of me right now, I'm going to do that with all my heart, with all my might. When we have that attitude and we're holding on to the promises of God, then we're going to grow through those. We're going to grow through whatever waiting period we have, and, and we can just grow through it and be ready to move on when God decides. Not when I decide, but when he decides. Second thing is this. Focus on God's promises. Remember I said we, we hold on to the promises of God, and we don't let go of them. You make declarations about God's promises. When you're doubting, stand up and say something positive. I remember planting this church in the first year and lying on the couch and just almost in despair thinking, is anybody going to come? How can we do this? And just standing up and saying, no, God, God, you called us to do this. And we're going to do it. You called us to do this. And that lifted my heart up, just making declarations like that out loud. And so hold on to God's promises and state them out loud. 
The third thing is rely on the faith of others around you. Sometimes your faith is weak. You just got to trust the person beside you. They're looking at you. They said, no, no, this is good. Keep going. You rely on their faith. When Jesus invited Peter out onto the water, and Peter had enough faith to walk part of the way, and then he sank, whose faith got them back into the boat? Peter's? Jesus's. Jesus reaches down, grabs Peter's hand, pulls him back up on top of the water, and they walk back to the boat. Sometimes that's just what you do. You just rely on the faith of someone close to you that loves you and that you have confidence in, and they're telling you it's all okay, so you trust them. And then finally, focus on intimacy with God, worship. Worship in a group like this, worship on your own, and, and God will meet you in intimacy in new, fresh, and powerful ways. I want to ask you to stand with me. I just had a sense as we were worshiping today that there was at least someone, if not more than someone, maybe several, that have been waiting for something from God and something that you believe is right for you to ask God for, something either that he's promised you or is in his word and you, and you believe it's what he wants for you, but you haven't seen it happen. And you have said either, God, I can't trust you. I've been there. I understand that in waiting. Or you said, God, when you do this, I'll trust you. But until then, don't count on much from me. Everyone close their eyes, okay? If, that's, if I'm right and that is someone here, would you just raise your hand up right now? I'll be the only one to see it. Okay, one, two, anyone else? Three, four, others? Five, okay. Okay, you can put your hands down. All right, I'm going to pray now. Just put your hands out like this, like you're going to receive a gift from God, all right? And, and for those that did say that, for others that have thought that but you didn't say it, uh, right now, I want you just to say, God, to say this in your heart and your mind. Let's all say this out loud, okay, with them. Say, God, just say that, God, I'm sorry I doubted you. I repent of that. I declare that you are good. I will wait, I will wait. Patiently, patiently with tenacity, with tenacity. Looking, for your promise. looking for your promise. Thank you that you're good. Thank you that you're good. Lift, up my Lift up my heart now. Let me walk in the joy of Jesus. In Jesus' name, in Jesus name. amen.